This is available as a podcast and a webinar. This conference will now be recorded. All right, good afternoon and welcome to uh, the 2022 session for evidence for limited jurisdiction courts. Uh, we, we missed uh, the last year or so uh, because of the pandemic, uh, but definitely wanted to, to get back and, and um, with our evidence. Uh, and um, so we do have two dynamic presenters this afternoon. Uh, Judge Lainey McDonald, if, if you weren't aware before, um, is a rising star. Uh, or are you still rising or are you already there? She is I'm probably the, falling at this point. No, if not. She is the town magistrate for the town of Marana, former prosecutor, uh, went to the University of Arizona. Um, she's been on numerous committees uh, and is one of the co-chairs now of limited jurisdiction new judge orientation. Uh, so she is a rising star or has already risen and is now settled. Uh, and of course, Judge Gerald Williams, um, who uh, is a frequent presenter for us uh, and just uh, award-winning uh, and always welcome to have him part of our presentations. Uh, as always, if you have any questions, unmute yourself and ask the question. You can leave your camera on or off. Just please be paying attention. If you're on the phone, mute yourself on your end. If, if noise coming, I'll have to mute you on my end and I won't be able to know if you have any questions. And um, I will turn it over to Judges McDonald and Williams. Thank you, Charles. Um, and Judge Williams is going to start us off uh, with our first slide, I think. We're glad to be here. Okay, um, evidence is, is just what you think it is, but it's, it's not what most litigants think it is. Most litigants think evidence is anything you mail to the court, um, then the judge will automatically consider it. And they get sometimes quite frustrated if you haven't um, you know, considered everything that they mailed to you prior to the, the case beginning. Um, but evidence is only what's actually offered in court um, and, it, and admitted, and there, there are rules that govern that, but it, it, it's something that's formally presented to be considered by the fact finder. 99% of the time, that's the judge. Um, obviously, if it's a jury trial, then the, the jury is, is determining the, the fine, is determining um, the, the facts of the case, but it's to either prove or, or disprove something that's of consequence. And all of those words kind of are magic and we'll explore them as we explore the definition of relevancy and and how to how to keep the case focused. I don't know who's doing the slides. I just know that I'm not. So there we go. Charles has them for us. All right, so um, testimony is just one type of evidence. We will be talking about a number of types, but obviously a lot of our um, cases have sometimes testimony as the only form of evidence. And uh, the testimony is, is personal observations or knowledge perceived directly by the witness. There are opinion testimony is admissible, and that's something that um, you'll get objections on 
And um, so it's important that you that we all realize that opinion testimony is admissible. There are situations in which it is not admissible. It's only admissible in, in certain circumstances, but just because something is an opinion doesn't mean that it's automatically excluded. I think defense attorneys oftentimes, um, or prosecutors even, but typically it's a, a more likely objection from the defense will object to something as, as opinion testimony and we're so conditioned like, oh, we can't have ultimate issue testimony or something like that, that um, it's important to remember that opinions can be relevant and admissible forms of evidence. So layperson opinions are only admissible if they're based on personal observations. And obviously if they're helpful to the fact finder, evidence has to be relevant in order to be admissible. Expert opinion testimony is only admissible if the expert is qualified and the opinion is helpful to the fact finder. Uh, there is case law that an expert witness can give a layperson opinion. So just because someone is an expert doesn't mean that they can't also have opinions on things that they are not experts on. Um, it's just important that the court make clear what the expert is qualified to testify to as an expert versus if the expert is um, giving you a, a layperson's opinion. So different types of um, different ways to look at what testimony is. It's an oral statement. So it's um, something that someone's saying in court under oath and the witness has to be competent to give that testimony. So if it's not something they have firsthand knowledge of or are qualified in some other way to state, then they're not going to be the correct witness to be giving that testimony and um, it's about their personal observations or admissible opinions. So that, that's the testimony that we should be receiving in court. And then Judge Williams will talk to us a little bit about documentary evidence. There's also documents, and obviously in a, in a breach of contract case, there, there are going to be documents. Um, documents require some type of, of foundation or a stipulation um, to explain or to, to allow them in. Um, if, there are, if there's an attorney involved, always ask the attorney to stipulate to the other side's exhibit. They, they, they probably won't have an objection, at least to foundation. They might have an objection to relevancy or, or something else, but always try to get the, the parties to stipulate to the, the, the exhibits. If there's a, so for a litigant, you can explain that the admitting a document doesn't mean that you agree with the contents of the document. It just means that you're going to consider it as evidence. Um, when uh, I ask a self-represented litigant if they have an objection to me considering a, a document, about 80% of the time, your objection is going to be based on they, dis they disagree with the contents of it. That's, that's not a, a legal objection. They have to have a, a legal reason that it's objection. Um, now, documents are, are frequently hearsay. Well, let me back up for a second. There, a, a foundation just means that there's something that, that says it was genuine. Um, so you have to have some kind of witness, usually, to say, yes, this, is, this really is a copy of the lease. I recognize my signature, something like that. And, and that can help lay a foundation for it. Documents often contain hearsay or even uh, 
hearsay within hearsay sometimes, like a police report will have uh, references to what someone told the police officer, and then the police the police report itself is, is frequently hearsay. How, how I explain hearsay is you can't say what someone else told you. Um, and most self-represented litigants understand that uh, concept. Um, they still are mad that you won't consider the notarized statements from all of their neighbors, but at least they understand, or, or hopefully you can make them understand that you can't cross-examine a, a, a piece of paper from somebody that's not there. And that's, that's one of the reasons why, why hearsay uh, documents are, are generally not admitted in, in most cases. Um, the next type of evidence, um, sometimes it's divide, sometimes evidence is divided into, divided into real and demonstrative. Uh, real evidence is easy. They're, they're physical objects, they're guns, clothes, drugs, um, maybe a test tube that was used for to collect blood, you know, at, at the scene of a, uh, after a DUI or something like that. I always try to get whoever's offering physical evidence to take a picture of it and substitute a, a picture for the record. Um, your staff is not going to want to take custody of a, a bloody test tube or, or something like that and, and store it. So if you're, if you're dealing with any kind of red, I, I can't really think of a, an example where we would have a gun be admitted to evidence in justice court. I, I guess it could happen, but if, if it's if I guess a misconduct involving weapons case could have one, but I I would encourage everyone not to take in physical evidence instead to insert a photograph, but the the the, the evidence itself comes in. Um, that's different than a demonstrative aid. And everyone who's done a civil traffic hearing has seen the police officer get up and write, you know, do a a chart of the highway or do a chart of the intersection on a on a flip pad that's not technically evidence that's 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 a demonstrative aid um like a diagram or something like that but even if uh someone brings in you know a blow up of a google map you know page or or some type of diagram if the other side objects to it you still probably need someone there who can lay a foundation if it's a self-represented litigant, they can do it themselves and say, well, I mean, I'm familiar with this intersection. This is what it looks like. If if they don't have someone like that, it, even a demonstrative aid could be a problem with with someone being able to use it. If dimensions of a room or something like that are important, then you would maybe need someone who's actually taken measurements of the room. And more complicated cases that have computer graphics showing accident reconstruction or maybe a medical malpractice case that shows computer graphics with how a blood clot was formed and traveled through someone's vein or something like that, you would need, the, the attorney can't just walk in and play that video uh, because it's, it's, a, it's a computer generated image. They would have to have someone there who can explain, yeah, this is what, this is what happens when a blood clot is formed and this is how it travels. Um, Anyway, that's, that's my two cents on a real and demonstrative evidence.
So direct and circumstantial evidence, this is something that um, is argued a lot in court. That, oh, well, that, that's purely circumstantial. So direct evidence is something that tends to directly prove or disprove a relevant fact. So a personal observation um, of the actual fact that's being testified to. Uh, circumstantial evidence is evidence that gives rise to an inference that an event occurred or another fact exists. And the easiest um, example of that is the raining or snowing example. There was no snow when I went to bed, but there was snow on the ground in the morning, so it must have snowed overnight. So that's circumstantial evidence that it snowed. I didn't see it snow, but there was no snow. Now there is snow. I'm pretty sure based on my life experience that that is actually snow, so it must have snowed overnight. Um, a lot of times, especially in Rule 20 motions, I would say, you're going to get an argument, well, oh, well, that's purely circumstantial evidence. Uh, the jury instructions can be helpful here. There, there's a jury instruction that says that um, circumstantial evidence carries the same weight as direct evidence. And I think that's important for all of us to remember when we're the fact finders as well. Um, so circumstantial evidence is admissible and um, should be considered and, and given significant weight under the Arizona law and rules. There is a, a, a jury instruction in, in military practice that it's almost exactly like your snow example, except it's rain, um, where if you, you wake up in the morning and you didn't see it rain, but you see, you know, the sidewalks are, are wet, you can reasonably conclude that it rained. In Arizona, it's a horrible example you can reasonably conclude that the water sprinkler system came on so uh i've actually saw an attorney argue reasonable doubt based on no you can't consider that at all there be all kinds of things can cause the the water to you know form on sidewalks it's, in arizona it's probably not rain so i, I like your snow example but it, there's actually a in military practice the jury instruction uses rain which if you're stationed at one of the arizona bases doesn't work real well. That is very true. Judge Huberman um, commented in the chat that fingerprints are circumstantial evidence as well. And um, that is absolutely true. That's not direct evidence either. That's not witnessing the person put their hand there. It's the evidence that's left over to show you that that person probably put their hand there or did put their hand there. Thanks, Judge Huberman. The judge's role, you have to remember that you're you're not passive, I, I, I think. Um, the, the phrase, I'm not a potted plant or something, or I'm, I'm not a, you know, a, a gargoyle or something just sitting here watching. The, the, the judge has to stay in, in charge of the proceeding, and you should admit only evidence that's relevant and that's reliable. And if it's not relevant and it's not reliable, then you shouldn't consider it. Now, there, there are lots of different exceptions, but all rules of evidence are based on those general co concepts. So you have to decide if it's relevant, if there's some kind of foundation for it. And if, if it's relevant, it can still be inadmissible for a variety of public policy reasons. Um, evidence is a, a one-year class in, in law school. We don't have time to go over everything today, but we can hit some of the main things. But the, the judge's role is to keep the main thing the main thing. Uh, 
and, and just try to keep everyone focused. On the next slide, there are, are generally, um, what, what happens is there's, there's an objection, some kind of motion to strike uh, or something like that. Always ask the other side to respond to the objection. Um, if nothing else, it gives you a moment to think about what you're going to say next. And then uh, you make a ruling. You can say either sustained. Um, everybody knows what the word overrule means. People get confused on the word sustained. So if, it, if they're self-represented self litigants, I usually just say, I'll allow the question. Or I'll allow the, and that way the, uh, the self-represented litigants get, you know, don't get confused. Because sometimes uh, attorneys are, are trained to say thank you regardless of what the judge says. So the, the other side will object, the attorney will lose the objection but he or she will say thank you, and that just confuses the, the person representing themselves. So I, I tend to use words like I'll allow the question or I won't allow the question and here's why or, or, or something like that. If, if it's something that's super critical, there's nothing wrong with, you know, listening to both sides and say I'll take a brief rest, recess and then find another judge in your hallway or 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 call Charles and and ask you know what you should do if you're a single judge in a standalone municipal court you may have fewer options but th there's nothing wrong with, with taking a break um I don't know if you'll have time to research it or not but you can certainly if you're in the middle of a trial or or if it's an evidentiary hearing you just listen to everything maybe and then write it up later, which is, is, is an option that you have. But there's nothing wrong with saying, wow, I haven't had this issue in eight months. I wonder, you know, I thought I knew what the law was, but it could have changed. Uh, they're citing a case that I'm not familiar with. So take a moment and, and reach out and, and find the answer. The, the next Another uh, slide question. talks about control of the presentation and the receipt of the evidence. Um, uh, even though judge, I explain in Williams. every hearing or every trial that the when it's your turn to ask questions, that's just your turn to ask questions. It's not your time to argue with the other witness or make your own presentation. When I turn to a self-represented defendant, their first instinct is to make a speech and then ask the other side if they're going to agree with it. I'm sorry, both of you turned your mics on. Did, did, did you want to add something, Charles, or did you want to add something, Judge? Yes, what, what I was going to say when, when I um, was a new judge and, and I would, uh, and in bench trials, I wouldn't do this in a jury trial, but in bench trials, if, if I had an objection, um, I would have the attorneys go back and forth perhaps, you know, three or four times until one of them convinced me or I had time to look up the rule myself and, and figure it out. So, you know, if, if it's a bench trial, feel free to, to have one of the attorneys convince you um, that they're uh, either the mo the objection uh, or the, uh, you know, is correct or not. Okay. I, I, I tell people, um, you know, this is your turn to present your case. Um, and 
sometimes stuff where representing litigants will ask me a question, you know, or, or, or something, or, and you, or they'll, it'll degenerate almost like it's a, a, a bad committee meeting or something like that. If, if your trial or your hearing starts to degenerate, I've had people in the spectator area raise their hand and then say something, you know, and I'm like, I'm sorry, this isn't like a sporting event. You can't, you know, just blurt stuff out. Um, and I was, oh, I'm sorry. I'm like, I, I get it, but you, you have to be called as a witness before you can make a statement. Um, but you, you have to keep things under control or it's easy to go from formal to informal, but it's very hard to go from informal to formal. So if, if you start out formal and you start out explaining, okay, no one's going to do any of the thing that's, that they see on afternoon TV judge shows. Nobody's going to yell at anybody. If they do, it won't help the case. Then sometimes that, that helps, but taking two minutes at the beginning of a hearing to explain, okay, you're going to make an opening statement, then you're going to make an opening statement and just go through the process. You say, are there any questions? And there usually aren't. Um, that'll, that'll help set the expectations. If you, uh, you can't really be mad at people for not following the rules if you don't tell them what the rules are. But a lot of that deals with presentation of evidence. You also have to figure out how to preserve and maintain a record. Um, we have all kinds of stuff coming at us now. We have people that walk us and show us stuff on their phone. Um, and as well, can you print this out? No. Or they, they'll walk in and they'll have some kind of flash drive and they'll want to plug it in to the court's computer system. Don't, don't do that. Um, uh, especially in perhaps in the county system where all our, all our computers are connected to each other. But you, you have to make sure of what's admitted and what's not admitted with what you don't want at the, whether you keep a, a checklist or you just, you know, write down on a scrap piece of paper. Because there's going to be, there, there will probably be documents that are offered into evidence that were not admitted. Um, and you need to make it clear in the event that there's appeal, okay, I based my, the, the trial judge based, you know, their rulings on exhibits one, three, and seven, and not on anything else. Because when it goes up on appeal, if they can't figure out which pieces of paper were, were admitted as evidence and which pieces of paper weren't, they might send the thing back for a trial de novo and you have to do the whole thing over again. So it, it's very, very important that you keep track, um, at least verbally when the things are happening, because people will forget, attorneys forget. They walk up and hand a witness, a, a, you know, and they'll explain the, the exhibit, they'll hand it to me. And I'm like, counselor, are you offering this as evidence? Oh yes, yes, your honor, okay. You know, but just handing something to a judge doesn't automatically make it a, evidence. Again, it's, it's easier to go um, formal to informal, but you can't go informal to formal. Um, on the last note on that slide, also making sure non-recorded rulings are reflected on the record. Um, Pre-COVID, I, I always just said, just make sure you don't have non-recorded rulings. <laughs> um, but I, I think 
COVID showed me at least when I, I started out doing jury trials in our council chambers. And then once we were able to come back to the courtroom, all the technology didn't always work exactly how we remembered or how we thought it was going to. So there were occasions where I did rule on something off the record for reasons that couldn't be helped at that point. And then just if you do that, just making absolutely certain that when you are able to go back on the record that you offer all of the parties either the opportunity to argue that on the record or make a very clear ruling for your your reasons for the ruling that you're making that you had to make off the record. Obviously, it's the preference to just not do it at all. But if those circumstances arise, it's really important that we keep really good track of what those rulings were and we make sure that they are preserved for the record um, as soon as we're able to. This slide um, obviously has a lot of information on it and you did get the materials from Charles. I think the materials that we're screen sharing are a slightly updated version, so I'll leave it up to Charles whether he's gonna send out that new version. We have no problem with that. Um, but this is, okay, perfect, he will do that for us. Um, this really is just a resource for you to know where to find what, um, because oftentimes you're on the bench and a party will make an objection under one of the rules and you need to know where to find it very quickly. Oftentimes you, <laughs> I'll always ask, what, what rule are you referring to? They don't always know. Um, and so it's, it's just helpful to have a bit of a roadmap as to where to find what in the rules um, and never be afraid to ask the parties if, if they make an objection to state the basis for the objection. I wanna go read the rule, it, you know, it buys you time. If time's what you need to, to kind of mull the issue over in your head, it makes sure that what they're stating is the rule is actually what the rule is um, because whether for good motives or bad, you know, sometimes people misstate what the rule is, whether they're trying to get away with something or they just don't remember the rule correctly. Um, it, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that you make your ruling based on, on the correct rule that's in front of you. So knowing where those rules are, where to find them uh, is really helpful. And like I said, just the act of reading the rule can kind of buy you a little bit of time to make sure that you're making the right ruling for the right reasons. In, in justice court, especially, we have a whole set of areas where the we don't really have to worry about the rules of evidence. That the best examples would be uh, small claims cases, and and you don't you can have you don't have to worry about uh, discovery or, or or anything. You can have disclosure statements. You can have trial by ambush in in small claims cases. Uh, but uh, the rules of evidence don't apply to small claims cases. They're designed to be simple um, and inexpensive ways to resolve disputes um, without lawyers, without rules of evidence and things like that. Hearings on the, the first bullet on the slide, hearings on the admissibility of evidence. These are like a motion to dismiss for a motion to suppress evidence. You don't have to apply the rules of evidence to, to something like that. And with most law enforcement agencies wearing body cameras. Now, what happened is often not really in dispute. That the issue is whether or not what happened triggers some type of constitutional violation or statutory violation. So 
there's a as we as more and more things are recorded on on police uh, body cameras, the what happened is is not going to be that much of an issue. It's going to be potentially potentially become less and less of an issue. Of course, there are things that happen that aren't on on the body camera footage, but you don't have to worry about um, you know calling the manufacturer the body camera to you know authenticate the uh, body camera footage or, or anything like that. Um, protective order proceedings, the only rule of evidence that really applies most of the time is, is relevancy. And I, I tell people that the hearing is going to be about what's in paragraph four of the petition. Um, now that's a little more complicated because they can, the plaintiff has an opportunity to amend their petition. And, but you, you still have to keep the hearing what the hearing is about. Um, whether it's a, you know, if it's a, a protective order proceeding and it's family members are against each other and they've been feuding since junior high. I don't need to know what happened in junior high, probably. I need to know what happened within the last year. So you have to keep things relevant. Um, if you're doing probation violation hearings, you're probably ignoring the advice from Charles Adonetto. Um, <laughs> and putting people on probation. But uh, for the most part, we don't really do that many probation violation hearings in a justice court. So discretion, um, it, it goes back to, to the role of the judge, I think, to a certain extent that Judge Williams talked to us about. Um, it It is our discretion to, to make these rulings, and oftentimes uh, the review is abuse of discretion. So we we do, we're the gatekeepers, we're the ones who, who get to make these decisions. And if we can articulate well the reasons that we've made our decisions, oftentimes those decisions are going to be upheld. Um, so know that it is your discretion, state that you're exercising your discretion and, and tell them what you've considered, especially in a bench trial, you know, I, I observed the witness's demeanor while testifying and for that reason, you know, that's what the, the court that reviews your decision doesn't get to do. So if, if you can articulate for the record that that is something that you relied upon in, in determining something was reliable or not reliable um, before admitting that evidence, uh, that can go a long way to, to protecting your record. Uh, oftentimes the objection goes to the weight and not the admissibility. And this is something Judge Williams and I talked about quite a bit in preparing for the session and even um, some of the cases that are cited later in the presentation uh, really focus on that point as well. So the, the objection going to the weight and not the admissibility, I, what I often like to say is I'll admit it and give it the weight I feel it deserves. You know, under the circumstances, <laughs> because that is typically the case. You know, it, the evidence is admissible. It may not be very good. You know, it may not be incredibly helpful, but it doesn't, all evidence that is admitted doesn't have to be the evidence that is going to prove the case. Um, and, and we'll get into that a little bit more when we discuss relevance. But um, typically, oftentimes, the objections that you're getting do go to the weight and rather than the admissibility of the evidence in the case. The next slide is on foundation, and we're going to we're going to talk about that. It's 
probably the second most common objection um, after relevancy. And if you're, say you're doing a landlord tenant uh, case and the tenant says, your honor, I'd like to show you some photographs I took this morning. And the, the attorney on the other side says, this is objection foundation, you know, suppress, you know, your, your desire to do an eye roll or, or whatever. And uh, depending on uh, the situation, you can actually ask a couple foundational questions and, the, and, and, and help the, the person who presents their case a little bit, you know, what are those photographs? When did you take them? Did you take them with your camera? Do they accurately reflect, you know, what, what you, you know, the, the scene as it is now, or the scene as it was at the, at the time you took the picture? Um, you can't help someone present their case for them. And if there's self-represented litigants on both sides, then you have to be uh, more careful. Uh, another way to deal with, um, I'll say a marginally frivolous foundation objection, is you can just say, counsel, which, you know, what part of the foundation do you think is missing? You know, and well, they didn't say when they took the picture. Okay, when did you take the, and then at that point, the, the person will probably say, oh, I took them this morning, you know. And uh, the counsel, do you have any other objections? And they'll probably maybe back down. Uh, but you have to have someone present, like we talked about earlier with the diagram, who can say that the exhibit fairly and accurately depicts whatever is there. And it, it's usually a photograph, sometimes it's a lease, sometimes it's something else. But you have to have someone to say, uh, yes, I have personal knowledge of this, and it appears to be genuine, whether it's uh, a blood test. Um, now, I, I think uh, Judge McDonald may uh, discuss later, you know, on, you know, can an expert testify to everything that happened, you know, along the way on the DUI, because the, the expert who's, who's presenting the case probably wasn't maybe the person who who tested the, the blood, it was maybe a lab technician. And can the expert witness say, well, um, based on my review of these documents and these initials, I can determine that proper procedures were followed, I'm, I'm familiar with the lab, and that can uh, perhaps lay a foundation for the bl blood test results being admitted into evidence. You don't necessarily have to call everyone who touched the blood. Um, you know, to, to establish a, a foundation for the admission of that. But on the next slide, I wanted to talk a little bit about social media and text messages because we get, we're getting so much of these. So there's so many of these now where people will want to introduce, especially maybe in an order of protection or an injunction against harassment case, we'll get lots and lots of people um, wanting to introduce Facebook messages and the other side will say, well, I didn't send that or that's not mine or, or whatever. Well, how do you sort this out? Well, this would be a, a, an example of a sample uh, foundation if someone wants to admit something from their own uh, social media or from their own phone. You know, you know, do you have a Facebook page? Is it currently active? Who has access to the page? Does anyone have authorization to update it or edit it other than you? Um, the, the attorney or the, 
litigant would then hand a, a copy of the the image to the the witness. What is it? You know, does it appear to be a fair and accurate representation of your page? Does it appear to be altered? And you know, Your Honor, I'd like to offer these as an you know into evidence. That would be a an adequate foundation for a a social media message or a text message if the witness has um, if it's coming from the witness's own if the, if the witness created the social media if the witness created the text message it's not that different from the admission of a photograph when we were talking as we were preparing this uh, and I told Judge McDonald that when I went to law school a photograph was great evidence it was some of the best stuff you could have now with Photoshop, a photograph might be lousy evidence. We have no idea, um, potentially, if it's been altered or not. So if, if the other side's saying, hey, wait a minute, that that tree wasn't there, um, or that person wasn't there, or, or, or whatever, then you have to have someone who can testify um, that the photograph, how the photograph was taken, um, and that the image hasn't been edited or altered. Um, those of us who were at the judicial conference uh, recently, I had actually forgotten that you can change the text of a sent email. Um, and I rely on printed out emails a lot sometimes in, in cases as I'm going, you know, and if you if someone would change the text of an email and then print it out after it was already sent, I would have no idea, probably. So it's it's important. That's what foundation is. Now, something can be genuine and still hearsay. That's a separate problem. But does anyone have any any thoughts on how to lay a foundation for stuff that the witness created? All right. You might um, think of something if you're driving home later. Uh, but uh, the next slide is a sample foundation for something from someone else, uh, some, something coming at you. Um, and we get this um, a lot as well, where someone is wanting to introduce someone else's social media or a, a text message from something else. And, and this is, you know, are you familiar with the other side? Did you communicate with them on a regular basis? How did you communicate with them? Um, did you receive a text message on this date? Would you recognize it if I gave you a copy of it? You hand it to the witness. What is it? I'll just, that, this is a, a, a printout of a text message I got. How do you know it is? Well, they're, I know that they're Surfer Girl 29, you know, or whatever. I, I know that that's them. Um, does it appear to be a fair and accurate representation of the message you received on that day? Uh, does it appear to be an altered in any way? And if if all those are 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 good answers, then the person's laid a, a foundation for the admission of the document. It doesn't mean it's coming in, but it, it means that you get past the foundation question. The The next slide is a, a discussion case, a discussion question based on a, a case, and hopefully we can get someone to talk. Um, <laughs> but uh, it says, uh, it was the fact pattern was a law enforcement agent obtained uh, messages between a criminal defendant and third parties from a phone that was found at the defendant's apartment. They're, they're searching the, the residence. They find his phone. 
the agent testified at trial that the messages um, that were in the defendant's phone um, were between the defendant and a number they they knew was used by their confidential informant. So that's that's how they were authenticating the 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 phone, uh, the text messages in the phone. He says, "Well, we know that this was between." The defendant and our informant because this is the phone number that our informant used the defendant says i don't know what you're talking about i never sent those messages you know there are lots of people that come into my apartment someone must have picked up my phone you know and and sent those messages without my knowledge do you think that those text messages come into evidence who, who thinks they come in who thinks they stay out just based on uh, foundation of authentication issues. They come in, but you have to... Okay, here we go. <laughs> no, they, they, they come in, but you, you, you have to, you have to give them the weight that, that is appropriate because again, you, you, you know, perhaps later you'll, you'll hear more evidence as to, um, other alternative explanations for who generated those messages. Does anyone have a, a different thought? All right, if we'll go to the next slide. Um, and Judge Kelsky, I, I won't tell too many people that the Ninth Circuit agreed with you. Uh, but the, the Ninth Circuit agreed with you in an unpublished opinion. They said, that any argument that the text message was sent by someone else went to the weight and not the admissibility, which is what we were talking about earlier. They come in, the judge can consider them, but the judge can also consider the testimony from the defendant saying, I never sent those. The next slide has a, it's an Arizona case about, um, it deals with a Facebook message. The defendant appealed a conviction uh, for trafficking and stolen property. The issue on appeal was whether a Facebook message, which by the way, offered the stolen laptop for sale, um, whether or not that Facebook message and the search history log were properly admitted. Um, the Arizona Court of Appeals in, in 2019 said social media uh, communications um, like this one is clearly offered to prove the truth of the matter asserted that's hearsay and that's not a business record so you're not going to be able to get that in as a business record exception to hearsay so you're going to have to come up with some other exception um to what's normally hearsay to to get that in because again this is a statement offered by someone who's who's not present in this case the the court of appeal Said that that was an admission of a party opponent and that's how that evidence came in but on the what they talked about authentication i thought was and foundation i thought was fascinating in bullet two it says a, a party can authenticate communications you know under the rules governing authentication using a wide variety of stuff but with social media you have to bear in mind that it poses unique challenges because there's it's very easy for accounts to be falsified. It's very easy for them to be interacted with by an imposter or even created by an imposter. So 
So when you're dealing with social media, you have lots of issues that you don't have with normal areas in authentication. I, I just, I found that, that case interesting. Does anyone have any questions about authentication of social media before we get back to regular relevant stuff? I, I just wanted to add that, you know, a lot of times when we get these, these social media cases, in, in, in your first example, the one from the Ninth Circuit, you had an actual phone number. And, and I guess the evidence was the phone number. They give us the messages that say, Johnny sent me this message. And at the top, it says Johnny. And, you know, I mean, my first question is always, what is the phone number? And how do I know that's Johnny's phone number? Because you can assign the name in your contact list, whatever name you want. And so that's just something to be aware of, I think. Well, I think so too. And I'm not, I'm not savvy enough in social media to even know the different kinds of social media that are available. I mean, when, when you're printing something out and it's a text message and you see a phone number at the top, that's one thing. When it's maybe a Facebook message or some other format, you know, a comment and Instagram or uh, there's a, a, a relatively new one to me anyway um, called Telegram. There, there's just there's a bunch of stuff out there. There's I don't I still don't understand how Snapchat works, um, but there's just a bunch of stuff out there. Uh, Judge Kissel, what are your thoughts? Wouldn't that be a foundational issue? I mean, if, if they could lay down the foundation to the authenticity and then and then track it through previous comments, et cetera, or as as to the dialogue and all parties are there, I, it seems like while those are concerns, they can be good overcome as long as the attorneys are doing their due diligence. Right. It's just what what we usually have is, uh, and and we're getting, you know, until you teach us how to be really good with screen sharing of electronic images. What we're getting are are printed out copies that could be changed with a, as simple as a, a good machine at a FedEx office, you know. And you know, they're saying, well, there was a lot more to this, you know. My response to this wasn't a response to that. It was a response to something else. And then you just have to kind of sort it out and say, well, uh, you know, do you have the other thing? No, I don't have the full conversation. I deleted that. I hate this person. Um, so it, sometimes it's really hard to, to sort everything out. And um, you're not wrong, probably, if you just err on the, the, the side of, letting everything in, sorting it out, and weighing the credibility of the witnesses. But sometimes it's, it's going to be very difficult, um, especially for people with gray hair, to figure out a, a social media uh, uh, item and see whether it's authentic or not. Um, and, and it's true, I still don't understand Snapchat. So, Good point, Judge Huberman. All right, so that brings us to relevance. And um, this is broken down on a few slides, but I think it's really important to, to know the definition. Evidence is relevant if it has any tendency to make a fact more or less probable than it would be without the evidence and the fact is of consequence in determining the action. So um, even if the 
evidence has absolutely has a, a very strong tendency to make a fact more or less probable. If it doesn't go to a fact of consequence in the action, then it's not relevant. Um, additionally, it's any tendency. So it, it doesn't, like we were discussing earlier, it doesn't have to be great evidence to be relevant. It just has to have any tendency to make a fact more or less probable than it would be without the evidence. So that's um, the beginning of the, the rule set on relevance that we'll break down a little bit on the next couple slides. So relevant evidence is generally admissible. If, if the evidence has any tendency to make a fact at issue more or less probable, it's probably admissible. Um, irrelevant evidence is not admissible. So you, you'll get a lot, um, like Judge Williams mentioned, foundation and relevance are, are really the two um, most common objections, I would say, and then probably hearsay after that. Um, so you'll get a lot of relevance objections, and um, that's when you need to, to fall back on, on that definition. It's a pretty broad definition, but if it doesn't fit, then the evidence is simply not admissible. So there is um, the danger of unfair prejudice um, and then confusing the issues, misleading the jury, undue delay, wasting time, or needlessly presenting cumulative evidence. Um, unfair prejudice is the one that's, that comes up the most. Um, and then I would say cumulative evidence, especially as congested as some of our calendars get, you know, we don't need to hear the same thing over and over again. Um, so once the issue has been clearly presented, you do have the option of keeping out cumulative evidence under Rule 403. Um, unfair prejudice and confusion, misleading the jury, undue delay, and wasting time. I would say of those, unfair prejudice and confusing the issues are, are the ones that you're most likely to see. And I think we unpack unfair prejudice a little bit more on the next slide. Yeah, so unfair prejudice is not just prejudice. You know, and a party probably doesn't want to admit evidence if it doesn't prejudice you in some way to the other side, right? That's what we're trying to do. One side's trying to be more persuasive than the other. Um, so you need to make sure that that what you're looking at is is unfair prejudice. It's not just that this evidence is really persuasive, it's that it's unfair for some reason. Uh, jury confusion is an interesting issue because I think, you know, the majority of the trials that most of us do are bench trials. Um, and we like to think that as people who have been elected or appointed to the position of judges, hopefully we're not confused as easily as, you know, the six members of the community with no training or, or background uh, to be a judge and be a fact finder. So you know, that issue doesn't come up quite as much, I would say, in bench trials. Um, waste of time and cumulative evidence is something that we have discussed. Um, and then it's the danger of things. The thing itself is not necessarily required. So if, if there's a risk of unfair prejudice or um, a, a risk of jury confusion, then you need to consider the relevance objection. Um, weigh and balance it, use your discretion, and explain the reason for your ruling. Um, that's that's going to be your best option for not only um, being upheld on appeal, but having the parties feel like they've been heard. You know, everybody wants to leave the courtroom feeling that they their side of the story has been heard. And if you can clearly and articulate 
the the reasons for your rulings i think people are going to leave more satisfied than if you just say granted or denied or sustained or overruled um you don't have to get up there and, and give a speech every time you make a ruling but uh, giving the parties a little bit of a reason for your ruling is going to protect your record and also leave people feeling hopefully a little bit more satisfied despite whatever your ruling may be I was just going to give an example of unfair prejudice. Um, the, the, one of the best examples of that is, is a, a prior conviction for the exact same thing that the person is charged with. The, uh, I think most of us, well, I don't, many of us have seen the movie Casablanca, where Humphrey Bogart's character uh, shoots someone, and then the French officer and tells the responding police officers to round up the usual suspects. But if, if you're rounding up the usual suspects, and you just you know, pick the last four people that were charged with bank robbery or whatever, um, charge one of them and admit that they have a prior conviction for bank robbery, that's not going to be a, a, a fair proceeding. So even though that might be relevant, um, that would be very, very unfair. So in, in most situations, a, a prior for the same thing is not going to come into evidence during the findings portion of the trial. It can come in during sentencing, but it's, it's not going to come in during the findings portion of the trial. Perhaps an exception would be if the, the defendant testifies that they don't even consume alcoholic beverages, and they, then that would probably open the door to cross-examination on the, the prior. But the perhaps the best example of unfair prejudice is some type of prior event or prior charge or even a prior acquittal, um, uh, that you can't consider that um, as as evidence, not not during the findings portion, because all of that that's relevant maybe uh, because it has any tendency to make a fact a consequence more likely. Um, that would be grossly unfair. All right, and then I will throw it over to Judge Williams for okay. 611. The Arizona Rule of Evidence 611 is something that you kind of only hear about at judicial conferences. Uh, no one else ever seems to talk about it, but it, it gives the judge quite a bit of authority and quite a bit of, of leeway, and it lets um, you be in charge of the room, and, and you do have to be in charge of your own courtroom. Um, the judge you know, it says should exercise reasonable control over the how the evidence is going to be presented. Um, for some, you know, do things to avoid wasting the time. Uh, I frequent when I when I explain what the opening statement is, I I tell people that it I, I I don't need to hear everything you think I need to know about the case during your opening statement. It's just maybe a two or three minute overview of what you believe the evidence is going to show. And they all nod and say yes. And then they start to give the complete narrative of the case during their opening statement. And I'll, I'll interrupt them and say, I want to hear everything that you want to tell me, but I don't need to hear it twice. So remember, the opening statement is just a brief summary. And then that goes on from there. Now, that doesn't work in a criminal case. You don't, um, the, when, when someone is, uh, representing themselves in a criminal case, 
then how the instructions you give them in the, and, and how what happens is completely different. In the criminal case, I'll, I'll, I'll tell people that are representing themselves that, you know, you're a defendant in the criminal case. You have an absolute right to remain silent. You have no duty to present any evidence at all in this case if you don't want to. The only person who can call you as a witness is you. And the only way the prosecution gets to ask you questions is if you call yourself as a witness. You can still ask questions of the other side's witnesses, but you're not obligated to do anything. You can literally sit quiet throughout the entire trial if you want to. Um, do you have any questions about that? And, and proceed from there. Um, if you have a, a, a situation where the prosecution tries to call a criminal defendant as a witness, you've got more problems than um, you may realize. But um, the whole thing is to keep um, keep in charge. And uh, there's no reason to, uh, you know, humiliate a witness or argue with a witness or, or, or something like that. Um, they they understand um, what happened in the case, and there's no reason to ask questions that will cause any kind of undue embarrassment or, or humiliation or anything like that. Um, the next slide talks about cross-examination is technically not bound by the, or limited by the scope of the direct exam. This is something that everyone remembers from law school or maybe from a movie they saw on television that you can only ask questions on cross-examination that deal with what the witness testified on direct exam. That's not true at all. Um, you, you can ask, you know, if, if, if the witness has been tested, if the, if the witness was tested, convicted of perjury three years ago, um, that's probably not going to come out on direct exam. It, it, it might, if there's a, the, if the attorney who's, called the witness knows that's coming they may call it so it can come out in a in a softer form rather than getting the witness bludgeoned on uh as a surprise during a cross exam but generally you can't ask leading questions on direct during the direct exam now you can ask some preliminary stuff you don't have you know do you remember the day you know do you remember coming home from work on this day you know, objection, you know, we haven't established that it was that work on it. it there, there's some preliminary matters, you know, if you, you, you say, what is your name? And you get an objection because they haven't established that the person's a, that the witness is a, a person or, or something like that, that that's just silly. But if, if the, if the questions are suggesting an answer, if uh, you, you get to, to something where the it's, it's the, the witness it's your witness it's that type's witness and you're you're making a small speech and say isn't it true but isn't it true that you did this and this and this and this yes isn't it true that that's not supposed to happen you can ask uh leading questions on cross exam but on direct exam the questions are supposed to be more along the line of what happened what happened next what happened next You'll, you'll never hear an attorney brag in a bar, you know, oh, did you hear those, my, you know, my direct exam was great. Did you hear those great non-leading questions I asked? You know, you're, you're not going to hear that. But the whole point of a direct exam is, is to get the facts out 
not to have the attorney testify, to have the witness testify. Charles, did you have something to add? Yeah, I did. I want to go back to that first bullet point um, because I, I just saw one of our lower court appeals and, and uh, the judge had made this mistake. Uh, and, and Judge Williams, you said that there wasn't a basis for that. There, there is, uh, it, oh. and it's still, in, it's still in the federal rules of evidence. And I've just put the federal rule of evidence in, in the box where it is limited to, uh, to the direct. But in Arizona, we're not using the federal rules of evidence. We're using the Arizona rules of evidence. And so you can go beyond the scope of the direct. That, that is one of the, the biggest errors I see. And then another big error that I see is for some reason, when attorneys show up in civil traffic hearings, people uh, get confused or intimidated and start granting uh, objections based on the rules of evidence in civil traffic hearings. And, and that just makes me cringe. So I, I did just want to point out the, the difference there between the Arizona rule of evidence and the federal rule. That was, <laughs> that was something that uh, was something Charles just mentioned that I wanted to, to draw attention to as well. Um, oftentimes when you have attorneys in civil traffic cases or protective order cases, they will try to, to apply the rules of evidence and whether it's because that's what they're used to doing um, in, in criminal cases or other types of cases, or again, because they're trying to trip you up. Um, it, that's very common, um, and oftentimes they, they get a bit flustered and, and frustrated when you won't grant their objections and you say the rules of evidence don't apply here, um, but that's just an important thing for us to remember on the bench is uh, that we do hear a number of types of cases where the rules of evidence do not apply. I, I had a question about the leading questions part. Well, I mean, I don't know question. I, I've been waiting for you to get to this point. Um, I have found lately that in virtually every eviction trial that we have, um, the, the plaintiff's attorney just asks leading questions. I mean, I think the fact that um, they don't talk to their witnesses ahead of time, they just connect on the day of trial. You know, when you call the trial, they're like, do I have a witness here from so-and-so apartment? Um, and then the witness comes on and there, there, there's been no conversation clearly between the attorney and the witness. And all the questions are, um, so, you know, are you familiar with the lease that this tenant signed on June 13th and that established a rent of $1,200? You know, the, the, there's never a question. All the questions are like that. They're leading questions every single time. And did that cause you to send the notice on this day telling them they had to pay? Um, and because they are always, you know, the tenant is always self-represented, there's always that issue about us jumping in and saying, you know, you shouldn't be asking leading questions or not. And, and I, I'm just wondering if this is an issue that everybody has run into or and how you're dealing with them. It's, well, your, 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 your concern is valid. The, some, 
some leading questions have to be asked almost to establish a foundation for the lease and the tenant ledger and you know who are you what are you the property manager are you familiar with this file um i, I have less problems with leading you know you know what did you do next what did you do in response would be a, a, a better question then and then did you send a five-day notice on august 3rd um but uh Sometimes you, I mean, it, it just promotes efficiency. It, it, it's some leading questions on, on you know, are you familiar with this lease? Are you familiar with the ledger? What does it say? What does it say on this day? Um, I, I don't have as much heartburn with that as I would in a different kind of case that's not non-payment of rent. Um, you know, isn't it true that the, you received a report that the defendant bludgeoned his girlfriend you know, then I, I would probably step in at that point and say, counsel, you're, you're leading the witness, just ask the witness what they know. Right. And I, but, the, but, you know, what, what happens most of the time is by the time the attorney gave them the information and then you step in and the witness just repeats exactly what the attorney just told them. So, I mean, I guess it doesn't, I guess it makes it formally you know, correct, but it, it doesn't resolve the issue that the witnesses, it, it, it's just hard sometimes to determine when the information is really truly coming from the witness or from the attorney. But that, that, that's just something that I've been seeing. I, I think it's a valid concern and unfortunately somewhat on a, a, a little bit of a case-by-case -case basis, but the, um, if, if the attorney is essentially testifying the witness is just agreeing with them, then that's, that's a problem. Charles, I don't know how you wanted to proceed. Did you want us to press or did you want us to take a break? Uh, does everyone, does anyone want to take a break or proceed? I'm okay with proceeding, but. I am too. Okay. And this is still you, right, Judge Williams? Yeah, I, I think we're still, yeah, on limit, cumulative evidence and sidebars. I, I don't like sidebars. I, I don't like when uh, attorneys come up and whisper um, to you. It's, it's hard to maintain the record. The jury thinks you're hiding something from them. Um, oddly, I've had attorneys asked to approach the bench in a bench trial. And I'm just like, there's counsel, it's just me. You know, there, there's no one else here. And I don't know if they're trying to do something outside the presence of their client or, or, or what the deal is. But uh, uh, I'm not a fan of sidebars. You have to let people make a record. Um, and if, if, if something significant pops up, then you can uh, send the jury back to the jury's deliberation room and let both sides argue so that there's a clear record. But um, on witnesses, calling witnesses out of order, um, I, I'm, 
in a bench trial, it, it doesn't matter as much. In a, in a jury trial, it can be very problematic if before the, the state has even presented their case, the first witness they hear is a defense expert telling them everything that they're about to hear is garbage. And then the state puts on their case. It, it's, it's kind of awkward. I've, I've seen that happen before, but it's better if the parties get to decide um, the order of the witnesses within reason. You can't delay a, a, a trial four hours while there's a jury there just because uh, a witness is, is not available and there's another witness ready to be testified. Um, Federal court is is really very snarky on this. I think if uh, the local rules for some of them, I think if, if if you're presenting your your case and you run out of witnesses and you can't produce a witness in 30 minutes, you're deemed to have rested, which obviously can be fairly devastating to your case. Um, but the last bullet is is really the kind of the most important one. Probably you will get what expectations you direct. Um, and it's kind of like what I said earlier, you can't be mad at people for not following the rules if you don't tell them what the rules are. And now we're going to go into lay opinions, I think. I'll follow up a little bit on a couple things that Judge Williams discussed. Um, I, and I think that last point is an important one um, as far as you'll, you'll get what your expectations direct. I think it's um, important to, to keep the decorum in the courtroom. And it's also important kind of going back to what Judge Williams was talking about earlier with setting the stage for how the case is going to proceed, that you can't hold people to rules that they, they're not aware of. Um, if in the beginning you explain to people what the rules are and you know, well, you'll have an opportunity to ask the witness questions, then if you choose to, you'll have the opportunity to testify. Then when you tell them you're, you're you're testifying, you're not asking questions. And like I told you earlier, this is the time for you to ask questions. Then it's not a surprise for them. And you're kind of redirecting them to something that they were already hopefully aware of if they were listening when you were talking in the beginning. Um, so I think setting that stage and making your expectations very clear in the beginning really helps things go more smoothly and um, prevents that kind of element of surprise for the participants when you say, oh, no, you don't get to do that right now. You can do that later if you've already at least set the stage for this is when you need to ask questions. This is when you're going to get your opportunity to present your evidence. Uh, I think that helps. And, and the same is true with attorneys. You know, if you're you're setting the stage for what you're going to allow and what you're not going to allow, um, and then you can hold them to those expectations as the trial proceeds. Oh, and then the one other thing I was going to mention was leading questions. Um, I think that this is a tricky issue and it goes maybe a little bit to what Judge Humerbin and Judge Williams were talking about. I pulled up a case in the background um, while everyone was discussing. And so a leading question, and, and Judge Williams said just this, a leading question is one that suggests an answer. A question is not leading just because the answer is obvious. So you'll get leading question objections a lot of the time for questions that aren't leading. 
they don't like the question because it's a yes or no question and, and the answer is going to be yes and the witness isn't going to have to expound on that answer very much necessarily. But as long as the question doesn't suggest what the answer to the question is, it doesn't technically, it isn't technically a leading question and, and you can allow the question. That was state versus Agnew, um, which is a court of appeals case from back in 1982 that's still good law. Uh, and there are some other resources on on that as well. So just something to remember um, as far as leading question objections. I have a prosecutor who asks lots of leading questions and it drives me crazy for the same reason that Judge Huberman was mentioning. When you have a, a unrepresented party on the other side, there's no one to object, you know, and they don't know that leading questions aren't allowed. Um, so that does put the judge in, in a tough position as far as advocating for a particular side or stepping in and, and offering legal assistance. Um, so I, I absolutely understand that, that pet peeve. All right, Charles, now I'm ready to go on. Thank you. So layperson opinions, um, lay witnesses can give opinions on issues that they personally perceive. Um, as long as they're helpful to the fact finder and not based on specialized knowledge and training, because if they're based on specialized knowledge and training, then you're straying into expert opinions and, and those require um, some more foundation. But lay opinions that have been shown in case law to require no special expertise, one of them is speed of vehicles, which is interesting to me because I don't think I can tell by looking how fast a vehicle is going, but perhaps some people are better at that than I am. Um, but demeanor, age, effects of alcohol, those are all things that a layperson can testify to. Um, so any witness can, can offer that opinion if they had the opportunity to personally perceive uh, the, the fact that's an issue. So they personally perceived the individual, they saw them when they're alleged to have been under the influence, they saw the vehicle driving, any of those things. Um, a, a layperson can offer that opinion. It doesn't have to be an expert. And um, as we'll discuss a little later, it's okay even if it goes to the ultimate issue. So this is a little bit um, just some cases to kind of back up those examples of lay opinions. Um, and it, the state versus Peltz explains it a little bit more in detail. So a lay witness can provide an opinion personally acquired through experience, often on the job, if the product of reasoning process is familiar to the average person in everyday life. Um, so if it's something that the average person sees and encounters on a regular basis, then they are allowed to testify to um, that opinion. Um, the speeding one, uh, that's, that's the one that says that apparently other people are better than I am at determining how fast vehicles are going. I mean, I suppose I could tell you if a car is going 90 miles an hour instead of 25, but if you want me to tell you if it was going 35 instead of 25, I would, I would struggle a lot more with that. Um, and then intoxication, that's one that comes up um, certainly in DUI cases and even other types of cases, domestic violence cases, things like that. Um, and lay people can, can provide an opinion on that topic. And then Judge Williams will talk to us a little bit about experts. An expert witness is, is, for the most part, just what you think it is. It's the most common example of an expert witness we receive or we hear from are either a defense expert in a DUI case or the, a chemist, maybe from the 
DPS Crime Lab. It, it's someone who is, is qualified to give an opinion uh, in the case based on their specialized training or knowledge or education, um, and they have a, a specific scientific or, or technical background. The expert witness is not a fact witness. They, they weren't there. They didn't see the, the events. They didn't witness anything. They're coming in after the fact and reviewing something, usually a test result, sometimes something else, and testifying as to some type of conclusion based on their applying their knowledge to the, the facts of the case as they understand them. Um, in Arizona, and I guess most states now follow what's called a Daubert standard. It's named after a, a case. Um, and that, believe it or not, requires the, the judge to be a, a kind of a gatekeeper and determine whether or not the expert testimony comes in or if it doesn't come in um, as expert testimony or if it's, you know, sometimes the phrase that is used is junk science or, or, or something like that. And uh, it requires the judge to take an active role in determining that an expert reached an opinion in a reliable scientific manner at the and that the opinions fit the, fit the facts of the case before the jury hears that expert testimony. Um, in the Arizona Rule of Evidence, there's sort of a, a little checklist uh, to go through, but if um, like if you remember the the first Top Gun movie, when the civilian contractor comes in and uh, Tom Cruise's character realizes that he was um, making advances toward someone who's going to be his instructor, as they're introducing her, I, I believe they say that she has a PhD in astrophysics, which would be of almost no use whatever to a fighter pilot. Um, but for whatever reason, that's that's the, the criteria that they picked for her um, to have her advanced degree in. So if you're if you're wanting to um, talk about, you know, it, it increased performance of or, or how blood reacts or something like that, you wouldn't call a plant pathology professor. You know, you would you would call someone who's familiar with blood alcohol testing. Um, Judge McDonald, did you have something to add? Oh no, I just forgot to mute myself. Oh, okay. <laughs> So expert testimony, if you're dealing with a DPS chemist, is easy. If you're dealing with uh, a medical examiner or something like that, it's easy. It gets harder when you have a case where maybe it's mechanic versus mechanic. And are, are those really expert or, or landscaper versus landscaper or, or, or whatever? I, I am not or trained um, in most mechanical things. And so I, I've had cases where someone comes in and as real evidence, they, they lay an engine part in front of me on the, the bench and see, see, Your Honor, you can see that that's damaged. I'm like, I, I can't tell anything from that. It's, it's, a, it's a hunk of metal. You know, I, I need someone to explain it to me. And if, if they have a mechanic that is explained to it, then the other can say, well, you're the wrong kind of mechanic. And you, and you get into what is expert testimony and what is, is lay testimony. I found that this was 
kind of an interesting case because it it talks about what what's an expert witness and and even if you're not an expert witness what can you testify to um this is a case that had lots and lots and lots of appellate issues um but one of them was an evidence technician for a local police department uh testified that a hatchet that was found at the crime scene had a chemical smell and what appeared to be blood and human tissue on the hatchet. Uh, the technician was not qualified as an expert witness. There was no indication that he could tell human tissue from any other kind of tissue uh, from any other uh, evidence. But um, since he was not qualified as an expert witness, he's a crime scene technician um and this is a jury trial now obviously in limited jurisdiction courts we probably don't have cases with blood and on hatchets um if we do that's an indication we're we're doing something outside of our our area but do you let would you let this testimony in um that yes there's a there's appears to be human tissue on this hatchet um in my opinion because i know what skin and and human tissue looks like. Would you let that go to the jury, or would you require um, a pathologist or, or or someone like that to testify? I'm going to pick on John Peck just because he's always interesting. Um, Mr. Peck, are you there? I am here, Derek. Yeah, okay. Here. You always have creative philosophical answers. What, what, what are your thoughts on whether or not someone who's not a pathologist can testify whether or not human tissue is present on a hatchet? Oh gosh. <laughs> I, I don't. They're not qualified. They're not qualified. I, I, I don't, I don't see how we could accept uh, that as as accurate testimony if they're not a qualified blood expert. Um, you know, it could be someone decided to be head chickens, which happens a lot here in Ajo. Um, I just I, I I just couldn't I couldn't be able to accept that as as an expert witness. Um, Did that make sense? Cheryl I'm sorry. Brown and, go ahead. I'm I'm sorry. I, I, did that make sense, or did you hear me? No, that yeah, it made, it made sense to me. Okay. Um, I know Cheryl Brown and Michael Kelsky have both defended people. I don't know if you defended homicide cases. But what are your thoughts on whether or not you would allow uh, a lay opinion on human tissue present on a on a hatchet? Roy, you uh, I, that I, you touch your name. Yeah. Well, I I would have I would have some some qualms about this. Because again, um, 
if this person is being presented to a jury as some kind of an expert, the jury is going to hang on on their word. And if they're saying it's human tissue versus, um, you know, versus uh, tissue from any other kind of animal or creature or something artificial, I, I think that that may may unduly, um, uh, you know. Uh, prejudice the jury, perhaps, but so I, I, w I would have some serious issues about that. Um, and and if it were to come in, I, I think the fact finder needs to be uh, needs to be aware that uh, uh, this person isn't qualified to really state whether it's human or other. Ms. Brown, did you have any additional thoughts? Um, no, I would consider that as a lay opinion. Um, I mean, how can you look at a hatchet and say, oh, this is human tissue, human blood. Blood is blood. Um, and it may be, as someone earlier said, someone killed a chicken for dinner. Uh, so I, I would think without some type of analysis, uh, formal analysis of what really was on the hatchet, um, that you could not accept this as a expert testimony. Well, the next slide. Oh, go ahead, Charles. A prosecutor's opinion from Mr. Spear. I'm sorry, what did you say? A prosecutor's opinion from Mr. Spear. Oh, good point. I think part of it could be let in. It just depends on how much foundation is let in. Um, you have evidence technicians that have advanced degrees. You have evidence technicians that have a wealth of experience and knowledge. I would agree that you know they, they deal with chemicals constantly for processing crime scenes. They can say maybe something looked like blood. Um, the, the biggest issue I would have, and I think that's where I'm agreeing with uh, Cheryl and with Michael, and that is the issue of human tissue on the hatchet as opposed to, you know, tissue. But the, even that, but I think still a lot of it may be able to come in just not as a, I don't think they'd be initially qualified without a lot more foundation um, as, as being a, an expert witness. The next uh, slide is, and I see that I have a, oh, someone fixed it. Uh, someone fixed that, I, I had a typo in this one. Um, You're but, welcome. Uh, <laughs> the uh, uh, Arizona Supreme Court recently didn't have a problem with the police technician testifying um, as a lay opinion, even though they they knew that the, the police evidence technician, um, they didn't use the term CSI effect, but um, people, I, I think, place a lot of value on crime scene investigation now uh, due to what they've been seeing on television. But uh, they said, yeah, it's uh, the the testimony was based on his perception. Um, he didn't definitively state that the substance on a hatchet was human tissue. He just said it, it looked like human tissue to him. Um, and the Arizona Supreme Court was okay with that. Now, I think part of the reason maybe this was not that big of a deal in the case uh, was and maybe this is part of the reason they, they found this way, 
was there were so many other evidence issues in the case and uh, the evidence against um, the defendant was fairly overwhelming. And so at, at some point you get to an analysis of, well, even if it was an error to admit it, it was harmless error because there was so much other overwhelming evidence that conclusively uh, established this person's guilt in a capital murder case. But I, I thought it was interesting and I thought it was interesting how it blurred the distinction between lay testimony and expert testimony. When you have someone coming in and say, oh, I'm, I'm a, I'm a crime scene investigator and I do this full time and I have a lot of specialized knowledge, but my opinion, not as an expert, it just happens to be, you know, that this is human tissue. I, I found that um, had this been the only evidence in the, of the case that may have triggered the, the 403 analysis of being unfairly uh, prejudicial. But in part, I think because there was so much other evidence against the defendant in this case, the the Supreme Court didn't find that that was a problem. The next slide is on authentication. And this is different. This is different from hearsay. Every everyone thinks that it's that if you get past hearsay, you've also gotten past authentication. And there are two different hurdles. It's two different tests. Um, Something can be genuine and it can still be hearsay. The, the issue is, isn't what the litigant is claiming to be. Now there's some things that are self-authenticating and you don't have to, to worry about that um, if you're offering that evidence. Um, a government record um, that's signed and sealed, some kind of certified uh, copy of a public record. Um, if the other side acknowledges the, the document, that's gonna be self-authentication and you, you don't have to worry about that. The, the, the classic, but it's notarized that we get from every self-represented litigant that wants to offer something into evidence. Um, that works for is the signature general, genuine. But I tell people that, that notaries are like forgery police. You know, they, they can say that the signature is genuine, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the contents of the document are, are official. Or, or anything like that. It just, it just means that that person swore um, often that that was true and correct if it's an affidavit. But if it's an affidavit, it's a genuine affidavit, but it still might be hearsay um, if you're in a proceeding where the rules of evidence apply. Um, and this one, really annoys me when an attorney raises the objection. Um, I said, Your Honor, that's just a copy. We need the original. No, we don't. <laughs> um, we've had really good Xerox machines for virtually my entire lifetime. Um, if, if the copy is genuine, we don't need the original. We don't need to take people's original leases into evidence. We don't need to take their only copy of a, of a certified check that's cleared into evidence we, we don't need to do that it, a, a duplicate is admissible a duplicate is admissible to the extent, same extent as the original unless uh there's some type of genuine question about whether or not the original is real um but for some reason it makes it unfair to admit a duplicate the only area where i can think that would be a major issue is in a a will contest 
where you, you've got to see the original document for some reason. And if, if you're doing a, a probate case in Justice Court or Municipal Court, you're, you're hearing the wrong kind of case. <laughs> and you need, you need to transfer that someplace else. Does anyone have anything further on authentication or, or foundation type issues? All right. The next area I think is one of the most difficult ones, which is why I'm not presenting it. I was wondering why you were so eager to throw that one in my lap, Judge Williams. Um, confrontation is is definitely an, an interesting issue um, and, and something that that we do have to deal with quite a bit. Um, you can see there's lots of different types of cases that are cited on the slide. Um, but I, I thought that the quote from Crawford that was in the, the second bullet point, um, if you will, there. The clause's primary object is testimonial hearsay and interrogations by law enforcement officers fall squarely within that class. So the confrontation clause itself doesn't discuss hearsay. Um, although if you look at Rule 804, you can see that the two do um, tie together very quickly and very easily. But that was something that I felt like, okay, so that that's what kind of brings these things together. If you don't have, it, it's hard to have a hearsay issue without having a confrontation issue. A, a lot of the issue with hearsay is that it's an out-of-court statement, so the, the accused does not have the opportunity to to confront the witness who who actually made the out-of-court statement or who wrote the document in um, terms of judge williams example that yes that might be a good signature on the document but if we don't get to talk to the witness who wrote it then then we can't confront them and um, really verify whether the information in the document is accurate so i have some different cases here that talk about different confrontation clause issues um, Crawford obviously is one of the, the primary cases on confrontation, um, but it has been different. It has been addressed in, in lots of different cases since then. Um, so testimonial statements are, are things that are made, statements that are made for purposes of, of an investigation. They're, they're things that are made for, for court purposes, which is why things like um, if you read Davis versus Washington, 911 calls may or may not be testimonial. So if you have a situation where the 911 caller is calling about an ongoing emergency to get help because they're in fear or someone's being hurt or, or something like that, and they're, they're summoning police to the scene for assistance and not as part of an investigation or to report something that was past occurred, um, then that 911 call may not be testimonial, but it is a case-by-case -case basis. Um, so that's something that you should look at depending on the circumstances of your case. Um, Melendez-Diaz and Bullcoming talk about um, things that are of interest in definitely in DUI cases, um, whether the expert has to be there um, and how much involvement the expert has to have in, in order to, to have the accused have the right to, to confront the witness against them. So I would um, recommend that you all read those cases if you are dealing with DUIs. Um, my little synopsis is here are, are helpful, but 
the analysis of the whole case is certainly more helpful. Uh, the Michigan versus Bryant case talks about police questioning of a dying victim in a murder case. Um, so ongoing emergencies, these are all issues that might make a statement, an out-of-court statement, not testimonial. And then another thing that's really important um, is, is the forfeiture by wrongdoing concept, um, which is codified in Rule 804B6. Um, so a statement offered against a party that wrongfully caused or acquiesced in wrongfully causing the declarant's unavailability as a witness and did so intending that result is, is an exception to the rule against hearsay. Um, and this is a situation I, I haven't come upon it as a judge, um, but I, I did have a case as a prosecutor um, where I was able to successfully argue forfeiture by wrongdoing and, and get a victim's statements in at trial. And I, I think it's a, a bit underutilized, um, honestly, in, in especially in the domestic violence realm, um, because so often victims don't come to court and testify because they fear the repercussions. Um, there's an analysis that has to be done. Simply being a victim of domestic violence isn't enough um, to, to meet the, the requirements of forfeiture by wrongdoing. But um, it is something that does exist and is, is certainly worth your time and and reading up about. And the forfeiture by wrongdoing does overcome both the confrontation and the hearsay hurdles if that standard can be met. So I think that's important uh, to mention as well. If anybody has any questions, I'd be happy to try to answer them. But as Judge Williams said, this is a, a tricky and always developing area of the law. So from there, um, we go to common issues in DUI cases. This is something when Charles asked us to present kind of pre or mid pandemic, we had talked about including. Um, so I went ahead and did so. Um, ultimately, they most of them do get to the admissibility of, of evidence, although they may not be shaped by the rules of evidence as a lot of the rest of our presentation has been. Um, but some issues that you see, and, and I would really recommend um, if you do a lot of DUI cases, putting together a binder or a notebook or a, a file on your computer, something to refer back to um, on a lot of these issues, because these are things that you are probably seeing or are going to see very routinely in motions and limine and coming up as issues repeatedly in your DUI cases. So if you kind of have a stock response of, of how you know you're going to rule, it just makes, for me at least, it makes me a lot more comfortable going into it, knowing that there are issues that I'm familiar with and I'm comfortable with how I'm going to rule on them instead of um, having to kind of reinvent the wheel each time. Um, the first is ultimate issue testimony. That's something that comes up a lot in DUI cases. And I've put a few excerpts from Fwenning, which is kind of the the pinnacle case on ultimate issue testimony in Arizona uh, that I think are helpful. I, a lot of times the argument will be that ultimate issue testimony is inadmissible, um, which, it, you know, I, I think it, by practice, if not by case law in Arizona, that that is pretty much true. But if you read Fleming, um, what they they urge is caution and to to make sure that you are weighing that danger of unfair 
prejudice um, in making your decision. And then I think the last bullet point under the, the Fwenning paragraph that in our view, ordinarily it would be neither necessary nor advisable to ask a witness's opinion of whether the defendant committed the crime with which he was charged um, when a DUI prosecutor, when in a DUI prosecution, the officer is asked whether the defendant was driving while intoxicated, the witness is actually being asked his opinion of whether the defendant was guilty. In our view, such questions are not within the spirit of the rules. So what they're really talking about here is asking the officer, was the defendant driving while impaired? And a lot of times the ultimate issue and the Fwenning objections become much broader than that. And that kind of gets us into the Campoy territory, which is the next paragraph. Um, attorneys will argue that the officer can't use the word impairment or, or can't say impaired or can't say cues of impairment, things like that, because that's ultimate issue testimony. And, and that's not what Fleming's holding was. And State versus Campoy uh, talks about how judges shouldn't put kind of unnatural rules on what words can and cannot be used. Um, in that case, the judge had a whole slew of rules um, that he said, or I'm sorry, of words that he said uh, that the parties couldn't use in the case. And um, the the holding was that the ju that judges should not place restrictions on vocabulary that would open the door to wordsmithing and invite perpetual litigation. And I thought that was a good point. You know, if you say, oh, well, you can't say cues, well, then can you say clues or you can't say impaired, but then can you say, you know, so basically it's just warning us that when we try to do those sorts of things, it, there's also a comment on transparency in the case that when you start to try to get around issues instead of discussing them, that it it, seem, it appears to the jury that, that the parties are not being transparent. And I, I think that's important as well. Um, Campoy also just offers a really good overview of testimony about field sobriety tests and what is allowed and is not allowed um, in that testimony and gives you kind of the whole historical progression of cases on field sobriety tests. So that is definitely a helpful case to review um, for that reasoning if you are doing a lot of DUI cases. Burden shifting is an argument that we get a lot. I don't know um, in Maricopa County if you're mostly a blood or a breath jurisdiction, um, but this is one with the two tubes of blood that is often argued in motions in limine and um, that any mention of the second tube of blood is, is burden shifting. And there's actually quite a bit of case law on burden shifting, and it, it's very narrow um, as far as what is not allowed. So I, I put some excerpts here for you, but even where the defendant does not take the stand, the prosecutor may properly comment on the defendant's failure to present exculpatory evidence, which would substantiate the defendant's story, as long as it does not constitute a comment on the defendant's silence. When a prosecutor comments on a defendant's failure to present evidence to support his or her theory of the case, it is neither improper nor shifts the burden of proof to the defendant, so long as such comments are not intended to direct the jury's attention to the defendant's failure to testify. 
So that those arguments are they really are the the protection really is that we should that the comments should not be made on the defendant's failure to testify. But if the defendant is coming up with a, a theory of the case and then provides no evidence to support it, um, it the state is allowed to argue that point. Um, I'd definitely be interested to hear from any of the defense attorneys or former defense attorneys um, on the seminar today as to, to your position on that. Um, my husband's a defense attorney and he loves to argue with me about this one. But as a judge, I, I felt pretty confident in my ruling um, based on, on where the case law is at. So if anybody else wants to pipe in, go for it. All right, hearing nothing. Um, I'll let my husband know that any former defense attorneys on the call agreed with my analysis and we can go on to the next slide. Um, so these are more evidentiary issues, admissibility of different evidence in DUI cases. So we, we talked a little bit about lab reports with Melendez Diaz and Bullcoming, which are quoted earlier. Um, MBD records, that's one of the ones that Judge Williams touched on. Um, they, those are certified self-authenticating documents if they meet the statutory requirements. Um, so they are admissible. A lot of, at least back in the day when I was a prosecutor, MBD abstracts had something typed on the top of them that said that they were certified self-authenticating documents under ARS 28444. Um, and they do fall under the rules of evidence, rule 9024 and 10. Um, 911 calls are something that's addressed in Crawford and Davis. That Davis case is a very interesting case, um, at least I thought so, um, as far as 911 calls go. And then PBT results. This is an issue that comes up a lot in trial. Um, and there, there is statutory requirements for admission of breath test results if they are quantitative evidentiary breath testing devices. Um, however, most preliminary breath tests that are done out in the field are, are not done in that way. They're not being done for a, a quantitative evidentiary um, number. So although that argument is made, um, that is not, the, these devices don't need to fall under that um, test. And I was trying to find a case for you all <laughs> that said that PBT results are admissible for the presence of alcohol. Um, I could not find a case that said that. However, if you um, do a Westlaw search for, quote, um, preliminary breath test and presence of alcohol, you get a whole slew of cases that um, outline that the preliminary breath test showed the presence of alcohol. Um, so I took that as good support for that proposition. Charles? And how about HGM? What about it? Uh, being a common issue, whether or not that is just, uh, admissible. So um, the you'll get some Daubert arguments on HGN. It is a scientific test. Um, it's the only one of the field sobriety tests that really falls under the Daubert standard, in, in my opinion. Um, so there are circumstances. I have actually excluded HGN evidence in cases where I didn't feel that it met the Daubert standard for whatever reason. 
I had a non-certified officer, you know, performing it, things like that. Um, so those issues can come up. I think overall HGN is, is accepted as evidence as long as the test was administered by a qualified person and in the proper way. And that those are the issues that need to be evaluated. But typically that will be admissible. Um, you can't correlate it to a BAC, um, but it until the BAC comes in and then you can use it, I believe, um, to corroborate the BAC. But don't quote me on that. I'm, I'm fairly certain, but I, I, that's not an issue I looked up today before the presentation. Judge Williams, when he edited um, my slides, did not add his email address to the final slide. <laughs> so we are available for questions now or, or in the future. I'm sure you can get Judge Williams' uh, email address from Charles if you really need it. All right, do we have any questions uh, regarding evidence or today's presentation? Don't all speak at once. We, we need at least one question or I'm going to change the COJIT uh, certificate to 1.75 hours from two. <laughs> all so. right. Everybody <laughs> ask a question. Let's say ask a question. Do we have any concerns with regards to authenticity as being able to make digital fakes becomes more and more prevalent? And what does the forecast for that look like for the future for us? I think that's exactly what Judge Williams was getting to um, in that when he discussed that issue. And, and I think that we do. It, in my experience, a lot of times, um, at least in, in the types of cases that we're hearing in limited jurisdiction courts, um, the parties don't dispute the contents. You know, they may want to tell you why they said what they said or, well, but that per the other person said this to me, so that makes what I said okay, you know, things like that. Um, but if there was a dispute as to the contents, and um, I, I think that with the fact that it's becoming easier and easier to alter digital documents, I think that's certainly something that we have to take into account. You can't just take everything at face value any longer. Charles, does it now count as 1.3? <laughs> uh, and Judge Williams, did you want to talk about um, proof of debt for debt collectors briefly? I could. Um, that's kind of my pet peeve um in a in a case where you have a professional debt buyer who buys debt um that was originally owned by somebody else so maybe the credit card was by citibank and citibank sells the debt um to you know big debt buyer xyz and then if the case um makes it to a trial it makes it past the summary judgment hurdle and and all those types of things um it gets a trial what is presented at trial as evidence as the evidence custodian to get it past the business records exception to hearsay is someone not who worked for the original creditor they don't want to have anything to do with the case they don't supply 
witnesses, they, the whole reason they sold the debt was so they wouldn't have anything to do with it anymore. Um, they may have written it off and, and gotten some kind of tax credit for it, which um, typically the defendant will point out. But the, the person they call as a witness is someone who will say, well, I'm, I'm qualified to be the records custodian um, and I can testify that these are real records from Citibank because I view them on a regular basis. And even though I didn't prepare them, I didn't work for Citibank, I've never done anything like that. Um, I can still certify, you know, based on my experience that these are legitimate business records. Well, by that standard, I can be the records custodian for Visa and MasterCard. I've, I've seen Visa and MasterCard statements my entire adult life. Uh, I. I have no idea, you know, if they're prepared correctly, I'd like to think they are, but I, I just think that's, that's kind of garbage. Um, but the court of appeals and lots of appellate courts disagree with me. They call that the adoptive records doctrine. And by that, um, and the best example is a, is a landlord tenant case where, um, maybe the, the person at the front office of the property management office at the apartment complex, maybe they changed every two or three months and the landlord needs to offer the tenant ledger into evidence. Well, the landlord can off, can just call the most recent person who's the tenant the in the front office at the property management office and say, well, no, I didn't make these prior entries, but I can tell that they were made in accordance with our, our business practices. I think that's fair. That's the point of the adoptive records doctrine. So you don't have to call every person who ever touched a ledger or every person who ever touched a, uh, a business record to, to come in and, and produce that. I, I can't remember the quote, but it was from Oliver Wendell Holmes. He said, well, you could reach a point in commerce where if the company was really big, they could never collect the debt because they would have to call their entire staff you know in as to, to, to lay a foundation for a business record i think that in my personal opinion that's what the adoptive records uh doctrine was designed for so some something like a landlord tenant case where you have multiple people putting entries in the same ledger it's not for someone who's put no entries into the ledger it had nothing to do with the creation of the document who can say well i bought them and they're because i bought them i'm now the the records custodian that's just it it it, it really annoys me um but there's lots of appellate case for law that says i'm wrong um and what the trial judge can do you always have the option of saying well this is admissible but it goes to the weight, not the admissibility. And plaintiff's counsel, you haven't convinced me. There, there's, there's, there's nothing wrong with the, the trial judge taking that position if that's what the evidence shows. But um, I, I'm not comfortable, and I never have been, with someone who's never prepared a business record being the business custodian. But counsel, but judge to play devil's advocate on that one, a company yeah. gets bought by another company and liquidates the entire staff that produced the previous records. That company who now owns those debts 
it does i by your own analysis i don't think you'd have the same issue with them trying to connect c- collect the debt they bought when arguably they were they were a real estate company and they they remain a real estate company and their 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 workers create real estate debt it it seems to be more an issue with with the commerce itself than than with the actual protocol you may be correct um if you, if you need to introduce a record from Kinko's, and Kinko's doesn't exist anymore because it was followed by FedEx, um, I guess I would have less heartburn with that than I would uh, a debt that's been sold four times. Um, and now, you know, someone who's is, who's coming in saying, "Yeah, I bought these records, and therefore they're they're real," but it, it's just it's one of those things. Um, where to be a good judge, sometimes you have to enforce laws and rules that you don't personally agree with. <laughs> and that's that's just how it is. Some of us were around during the highway photo enforcement camera tickets. I thought that was a horrible statute, um, but I enforced it because, you know, you, you, that's what you do. We don't we don't get to pick the law um, as, as a trial judge. Um, and we don't I, I didn't write any of the rules of evidence. Uh, so we, we, we proceed from there. But I, I think, Judge Kissel, you have a really good point. Okay, and I am going to redo the COJET certificate uh, to correct the uh, name of the presentation to refer to limited jurisdiction courts rather than limited jurisdiction judges. Uh, for those of you who want to claim CLE credit, the state bar is much happier to accept it if it does not refer to judges. Uh, so I'll go ahead and update the packet and uh, and update the COJET certificate, which as always is the last page of your packet. Thank you everybody. Thank you so much to judges McDonald and Williams. Uh, if everything goes as planned, this will be uploaded to YouTube uh, for future viewing. So have a great day, everybody. Thank you. That's it, folks. Let's go visit the Lake of Titanic. What's up, dude?